You're listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Hello, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. For the seventh consecutive week, we had the honor and privilege of moderating BMO Financial Group's official COVID-19 weekly call with Dr. John White and three subject matter experts from BMO Capital Markets. This week, along with Dr. White, was myself, Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets, as well as Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory, Head of Fixed Income Commodities and Currency Strategy, Margaret Karens, and Senior Biotech Analyst, George Farmer. During this week's podcast, we're going to listen to not only Dr. White's comments, as we usually do, but we're also going to layer in official comments from George Farmer, our Biotech Analyst at BMO, but also some back and forth between the two before we come back and hear our overall synopsis of the call. Now keep in mind, given that we're talking about medical information, here's just a quick reminder that if you need medical advice, please directly consult your physician and or healthcare professional. Dr. John White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. White is the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD. In this role, Dr. White leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement at the Center for Drug Eval and Research at the US FDA. Now keep in mind too that Dr. White is a practicing physician and is at the front lines with respect to fighting COVID as he continues to see patients in both the Washington DC and Maryland area. Here are Dr. John White's formal comments layered in also with George Farmer for the week of April 27th. I'm going to start off with world data, and then move to Canadian data, and then United States data, and then talk about what's lately been in the news, what we know, and what we don't know. So globally, there are now over 3 million cases of coronavirus, resulting in over 200,000 deaths. In Canada, there have been 46,898 cases with 2,560 deaths. Just a few days ago, Dr. Teresa Tam, who is a a public health official in, in Canada, talked about there really is in Canada a slowing of the coronavirus toll. And that's because the death toll is rising less than 10% for the ninth day in a row. Lately, it's been around 6%. So we really are seeing a flattening of the curve, or some in Canada are saying planking the curve. So tremendous progress in Canada in terms of infections and cases. Now, the Prime Minister uh, has said that isolation measures to fight the outbreak are going to remain for the time being. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in my uh, time allotted today because that's important for all of North America and globally. 
and some of Canada's 10 provinces have announced plans to gradually reopen their economies, still talking about social distancing, physical distancing, and protective equipment in the workplace. And the Prime Minister has pointed out that the exact measures are going to differ as infection rates vary among the provinces. But he has been talking about having national coordination, which is somewhat different than the United States. And he's also pointed out that restarting the economies of the provinces are not going to depend on presuming that people who have become infected have developed immunity. And this relates to the antibody testing. And for those that live in Ontario, uh, know that the school closures have extended until May 29th. So social distancing uh, isn't ending right now, but we're going to see some changes. In the United States, we have nearly a million cases with over 55,000 deaths. But the hotspots are very relevant to keep in mind. It's not geographically uh, even throughout the country. And I'm going to send a, a map of the hotspots in the United States. But if you took New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, and California, those are over half the cases and half the deaths. So I told you there were over 55,000 deaths. New York itself is over 16,000 of those deaths. And the next highest one is New Jersey at 5,000, nearly a third of what New York is. So it's a point of reference. I wanted to include some polling data on today's discussion where a recent poll in the United States showed that 40% of people say they personally know someone who has tested positive for coronavirus or personally know someone who thinks they had or have coronavirus. And 10%, one out of 10, said they personally know someone who has died from complications related to coronavirus. Let's talk about testing because there's been some um, new announcements on there. You all know about diagnostic testing, which is the nasal swab. There's now a saliva test to diagnose coronavirus, and we believe it's just as accurate as a nasal swab. The important point about that is you still need to have the medical professional collect the specimen when you're done. But LabCorp and some others are, have announced that there is an in-home test that's less invasive, meaning you don't have to stick it as far up your nasal cavity. You just partly do in your nose, and then you bring it to a FedEx station and ship it. Uh, and then the results are back in a day or so after they get it. That also requires the prescription of a health professional in meeting certain criteria. Early on, that's just for health professional and first responders, but this in-home testing is likely to expand. It's all about antibody testing right now, too, which is different. That's not going to tell me that you have the test today. That's going to tell me that you had it several weeks ago or several days ago. So it's not to diagnose coronavirus if you feel sick, but rather to tell us if you've had it and you developed antibodies. And that's been in the news a lot. There's the point of care tests, which are the pinprick. They're qualitative, tells me whether or not you have antibodies. And then the, there's the serum, which you go for a blood draw or someone comes to your home. It's more quantitative. But the challenge has been there have been numerous deficiencies in testing accuracy. These come under an FDA authorization. I've talked about that before. That's a lower standard of accuracy during a public health emergency. And we're still learning whether the presence of antibodies gives immunity, which gives protection. That's what we care about. 
but we need much more research. These immunity certificates or passports that we heard about a couple weeks ago, we don't hear about them as much. Most data shows we don't have enough information to conclusively tell us that. And if anything, antibody testing may tell us more about herd immunity, which means the status of the people in the community who might have been asymptomatic and actually infected, but now have antibodies. And there's some data today from Sweden that talks about by June, more than half the population may have antibodies. And once we get to 60 to 70%, we have good herd immunity. We still have a way to go in other areas of the country. And I also want to talk about what's in the news lately. There's been a lot of discussion whether people can get reinfected with coronavirus. And the WHO said last week that there's no evidence that antibodies protect from reinfection. And I want to tell you, there's only been a few cases where someone who had coronavirus eventually tested negative, then later tested positive. We do not believe that this is a virus that causes reinfection. There's no data to support that. We believe that there were problems with testing, either the diagnostic testing or antibody testing. And we do know that if you have a negative test, sometimes you should be retested. There's no evidence on the other side that antibodies don't provide some sense of immunity. We need more data, but we also have to be practical. It's a simple RNA virus. It's not that complicated. It's likely that it acts like other respiratory viruses. It's not to diminish the seriousness of the infection, but we also don't want to alarm people, and language is very important. It's more likely than not that we develop some sense of immunity after infection. We need to get better tests. We hear a lot of talk about reopening. It's common right now talking about in the United States and some cities and counties and states are starting to reopen. Uh, we just mentioned it about Canada. Federal guidelines in most regions suggest the following need to take place. And I'm gonna send something from the National Governors Association which has summarized a lot of the different groups that have talked about different strategies to reopen. But there's really four criteria that you need to meet um, to start to think about reopen. And, it, and these make sense. You need to have a two-week decline of declining cases, right? If we know that the incubation period is 10 to 14 days, the data is always going to be a little bit behind. So let's see that trending downwards. And we're starting to see that in many cities. We need to protect the surge capacity of hospitals. We're talking about returning some elective surgeries. So you need to make sure that if there is a surge, you need to be able to make sure that you can provide good care. And this is where testing comes in. And this is the big challenge that we've had. We don't have enough and adequate testing. That's how you're going to know if you're going to have a surge capacity. Now, the Rockefeller Foundation recently put out a report last week that says we should be doing 30 million tests a week. That's not a, a mistake. 30 million tests a week. We've done about 4 million over the entire course. So that's a long way to get there. They feel we need 300,000 contact tracers to go and identify people, isolate folks who might have been exposed. That's an important element. And they estimate that this will cost $100 billion. Hundred billion, and they have pledged fifteen million. So we do need to think, and maybe we'll talk about it in Q and A. Is that practical to be doing all those tests? I wish we could, 
but there are challenges. And then when we talk about contact tracing, that's about putting people in a box, so to speak, a virtual box when you know they've been infected and who they've come into contact with. And there's talk about those 300,000 uh, contact tracers, but it's also about what's the role of tech. And I talked about that last time, the role of Google and Apple. But I wanted to reference a, a survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation that said less than 50% of people were willing to download an app that does contact tracing unless they, unless they were specifically told that allows people to go back to work and businesses to reopen. And 60% actually wanted the government, the CDC or the state health department to manage the data. 70% of people are not okay with private tech managing the data. Uh, and there really was a concern that some people are concerned that the private sector companies will sell their data, which is more concerning than the government using the data for purposes beyond tracking the spread of the virus. Just points to keep in mind, because you can't have contact tracing with an app if people don't opt in to participate. And the other thing to keep in mind that even if we start to open, the public isn't necessarily going to go to use services, go to use services. And there's been some conflicting information over the past two days here in the United States. Uh, uh, one of the coordinators, Deborah Burks, has said social distancing will last through the summer. She hasn't specified what that means. And then Mike Pence, the vice president, has talked about the virus should be behind us by Memorial Day. So we've had conflicting messages. But the reality is we will likely have some measure of social distancing throughout the summer. Probably not what it looks like today, but some measures. And I will tell you, on WebMD, people are searching ending shutdown. Uh, so folks you know, are really starting to think about what that means, what social distancing looks like, how can that work in a restaurant, is that even possible? The other biggest item that I think we're going to start talking about, and this has been on uh, National Public Radio, various podcasts, the Society for Human Resource Management, is talking about what the office setting might look like post-COVID. And under most guidelines right now, even these federal and state, remote work, telework is still being encouraged. But there's a discussion going on now about what steps need to be taken to bring workers back to the office Everyone can't telework in all of their fields. So there's a discussion in any business around whether they will need to retrofit, whether we need to be doing temperature checks of people coming in, whether we need to adjust HVAC, whether we need to time shift uh, people's work in the office. Do they need to wear facial coverings? We're even seeing people are asking about, should elevators be voice activated so people don't touch? And, and, and doors automatic. And of course, we have to address the school issue. If there's no school for kids, that often means no office time for many parents. But here's what I want to talk about from a health perspective. The goal we need is science to protect physical health, but in some ways it's also to protect mental health. So just because you touch an elevator door or an elevator button, doesn't mean you're going to catch coronavirus. And we need to move people away from this fear and talk about the science of transmissibility, which we've talked about on other calls. But let's be honest, part of that is addressing the mental health of employees and making them feel confident that coming to work is something they can and should do and feel safe about 
that's where we're going to have a lot of discussions, and that's where effective communication, that's where effective science is going to be brought into it, and also that we need to figure out a way to ramp up testing. So I always like to end with some concerns I have as well as where I'm optimistic about. Um, so testing does remain a critical concern. We really need to ramp up testing. Can we get to 30 million a week by June? I'm not sure, but let's start thinking about how we use it uh, on a wider scale. And then how do we have more clear communication that's coordinated um, and address these issues of transmissibility and, and not making people be overly fearful, as well as showing what their individual risk may be based on age and other chronic conditions. But where I have a lot of optimism is the number of cases and deaths are down considerably. The number of cases and deaths versus the initial projections even at this point in time, is a fraction of the initial estimates. It's still tragic that the tens of thousands of deaths that we've had in the United States, the thousands of deaths in Canada and around the world, but we have implemented effective public health strategies, um, and, and that's a, a success story to some degree. And we're going to see over the next few weeks how we can manage living with the virus in communities. I know others are going to talk about where we might be in treatments, but we're going to need to live with the virus in the communities for some time. It, it is decreasing. We're not sure how much yet. We're not sure how temperature is going to impact it. But having the important discussion about the consequences of not getting care for other conditions, as well as the impact of the economics on our health, is becoming a much more vigorous discussion, and we need to have that discussion. So I'm optimistic that we're sorting out a strategy of the key to reopening. We're, we're talking about it based on risk and science, and I think we're going to continue to see progress, and we have implemented um, effective strategies. Okay. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Brian. I'll be happy to answer questions. Thank you, Dr. White. Now we're going to hear from George Farmer, Senior Biotech Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. Go ahead, George. Great. Thanks, Brian. Um, and thanks for that, Dr. White. That was really interesting. Um, today I'd like to talk a little bit about um, uh, some of the progress that has been made with uh, various therapies to treat COVID-19. Um, I'll start off with um, the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. This has been certainly a hot topic in the news of late. Um, we've accumulated a lot of data since this uh, first came as a, as a potentially promising treatment. Um, recall that there were some early results, um, particularly out of France, that showed some early hints of activity uh, with hydroxychloroquine, especially when combined with uh, the antibiotic azithromycin. Um, however, these studies were not done with a control arm. They were not very robust. Um, then, since then, coming out of France, there had been a broader study, again without controls, but still looking very compelling. Um, now we have some results from comparative studies, and uh, unfortunately, they're looking less promising. Um, there was a, a study out of China, probably the first randomized study, which uh, showed some interim results and did not see any difference uh, between uh, patients treated with uh, hydroxychloroquine or just standard of care. Uh, there was no difference in, in the, the rate of viral clearance. 
But there was an impact on a biomarker called CRP, which is a biomarker of inflammation. Uh, the drug did appear to improve those levels, uh, which is consistent with the drug uh, having anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, there was also a retrospective analysis of records from the uh, from VA hospitals uh, comparing patients uh, who had received the drug versus those who did not, um, also uh, patients who had received the combination with azithromycin, and again, nothing different, as, uh, no difference uh, in overall survival in those groups. And then we just learned that a trial confined to New York State that enrolled uh, about 600 patients uh, no details have been provided, but it was announced that there was no clinical benefit. So uh, along those lines as well, FDA has recommended against the use of hydroxychloroquine for uh, treating COVID-19 patients outside of a hospital setting. Uh, and they, you know, they've raised these issues of cardiac toxicity. Uh, this is certainly a step back from the emergency use authorization that was issued uh, uh, end of March for hospitalized patients. And, you know, just raises a lot of questions, I think. Um, you know, was that initial use uh, in, in any way politicized? Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, F, you know, FDA has already approved hydroxychloroquine. It's been on the market for a, a long time. And there certainly was anecdotal evidence that supported that. Um, and also, the, the use was confined, confined to, uh, to a hospital setting to enable uh, monitoring of patients. So what does this mean for for these drugs? Uh, not good. It's still maybe um, a drug that can be used as last resort, but I think um, my view is it's time to move on. Um, there are some uh, direct antivirals that have been uh, that are being tested and um, uh, have have been tested. We've seen some data coming out of a trial evaluating a drug called Remdesivir. This is in development by a company uh, called Gilead. Um, there, uh, it does appear that the drug has um, maybe some activity as evidenced by a study that came out of uh, Chicago that looked at um, over 100 patients uh, that had been treated. Again, no control here. Data looked promising. Gilead has reported that patients treated on a compassionate use basis have uh, shown encouraging results. Again, no comparator. Uh, there was a study that was reported out of China. This was a randomized trial. They indicated that there was no benefit um, and that more patients were discontinuing treatment uh, in the drug arm versus placebo. Uh, that doesn't sound good. Um, but all these studies, I think, are really hard to interpret. Uh, Gilead, um, who has been involved with, with uh, running clinical trials the right way, we think, um, is set to report results any day now from a, a single-arm study in patients with uh, severe disease. Again, there's not going to be a comparison here, but this is uh, going to be a, a pretty rigorous study. And then we're going to see some results in May from a randomized trial uh, in, in patients with more moderate disease. So still, I would urge patients on this. The mechanism makes sense, why this drug could work. Um, safety is certainly going to be an issue, and we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, there's also been, uh, we learned today, some uh, results coming out of um, a clinical trial evaluating a, an anti-inflammatory agent called Kivzara. This is actually treating uh, the actual disease itself, the inflammation process of the disease. It's not a direct antiviral. Um, uh, the patients uh, both had severe and critical disease uh, 
uh, unfortunately, there did not appear to be any benefit. Um, actually, in the critical subgroup of patients, the drug appeared to have a detrimental effect. Uh, but in the severe patient cohort, there was some benefit. Uh, so we're still awaiting some phase three results. Um, but that uh, is that's a bit discouraging from what we what we saw. Um, uh, as far as vaccines are concerned, there are does about a dozen vaccines that have been highlighted, all in different stages of development. So all have different twists on them. Uh, probably the most high-profile one right now is coming out of a company called Moderna. This is an RNA vaccine which encodes a key viral protein. Uh, the hope is to get the body to make the protein in its own cells and that should mount a protective immune response. Um, this has never been tested in humans with a uh, vaccine against any coronavirus, but it has been done with other viruses, including cytomegalovirus, um, to a lesser extent with Zika virus and other respiratory viruses uh, in humans. So uh, uh, immune responses have been shown to be mounted against these. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see if that can be done with a uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. We know that the first 45 patients have been treated, all of them, in three dose arms, and the company has announced that, that there will be an expansion to uh, older populations. Uh, this is good news because it means that uh, so far so good, and the trial continues, and the trial, the patients are actually coming in for their booster shots. So, so far the drug, the vaccine appears to be safe. Uh, in June, though, that's when we're going to be getting our first hint of any potential efficacy when uh, the company and, uh, and, and NIH is running the study. We'll be looking for neutralizing antibodies to see if there are, are, are any that have been generated in cell culture. Now, whether this translates into protective immunity, who knows? That's probably not going to come until uh, the middle of next year. Um, and then, uh, interestingly enough, we, we learned uh, that a company out of China called CanSino is starting a phase two trial with its vaccine in Canada. So um, that's all I have to say about uh, the landscape with, with uh, therapies and vaccines, and I'll turn it over to, uh, to Brian uh, to, to uh, resume our conversation. Hey, George, so much. I think today we have such a unique opportunity for a doctor to interact with an analyst to cover these companies in terms of treatments and vaccines, so I wonder... Dr. White, would there be a question you'd like to lob into George and kind of take a minute or two, both of you, to kind of go back and forth and talk about each other's comments here today? Dr. White, go ahead. I'd like to hear where, where do you feel on vaccines? Yeah, so again, um, we, we think this approach by Moderna is very interesting. It is quite novel, having said. Um, the, the material that's being injected is is a nucleic acid, which is supposed to encode for the actual antigen that is supposed to mount the immune response. Um, it, it, it remains to be seen whether this, going to, this is going to work. But from a manufacturing perspective, this could be extremely practical. Um, um, Moderna can make lots and lots of this vaccine relatively easy. They just won a grant from BARDA, uh, $483 million financing commitment to uh, help with uh, clinical trial and manufacturing scale-up. Um, we've had conversations with the company that uh, they feel that they can uh, they can manufacture over 100 million doses per year, potentially, by 2022 or 2023. Um, so that could be promising. Um, then there are other vaccine approaches, as you probably know, Dr. White, with uh, using attenuated virus, using other other vectors 
to deliver antigens. Um, those are all supposed to start later in the year, um, and uh, you know, certainly just wait remains to be seen, which will which will pan out. Here's what we heard from Dr. White this week. Globally, there are over 3 million cases of coronavirus with 200,000 deaths. In Canada, there are 47,000 cases with 2.5,000 deaths. There's been a significant slowdown of the, of the toll that we've seen in Canada so far. In some provinces, they're expected to gradually open up in the coming weeks. In the U.S., there are nearly 1 million cases with 55,000 deaths. Hotspots such as New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and California account for over 50% of these cases. A variety of diagnostic tests are supporting widespread testing. There's now a saliva test, which requires a medical professional to collect specimens. And LabCorp actually has released an in-home test that is less invasive and can be shipped via FedEx. Initially, this test will be available for health professionals, but this will expand over time. Current data on antibody testing is insufficient to draw any conclusions right now. Antibody testing will indicate if a person had the virus many weeks ago, but there are still numerous deficiencies in testing accuracies. Also, we are still learning whether antibodies can definitely give one immunity and therefore protection from the virus. In terms of reinfection, the WHO says there's no evidence that antibodies prevent infection. We also do not believe COVID-19 is a virus that causes reinfection. It is more likely that it acts like other viruses and that you will develop some kind of an immunity after getting better. There are many discussions on reopening, reopening the economy, reopening businesses, which will require a two-week consecutive decline in cases and surge capacity in hospitals. For offices, this will also mean new settings post-COVID-19, i.e. retrofitting of offices, temperature checks, time shifts, facial covering, voice-activated elevators, and automated doors, which are only some examples. Dr. White notes the mental state of employees with respect to feeling confident enough to return to work is very important, and this will require science and effective communication. Dr. White's last point, while additional testing and coordinated communication remains a concern, Dr. White is still optimistic. This is because the number of cases and deaths are down significantly and at a fraction of earlier projections, which indicates effective public health strategies have been implemented. It is likely that we will be living with the virus in our communities for a while and we are figuring out strategies to continue to make progress. Now, BMO's biotech analyst, George Farmer, shared his thoughts on progress of various therapies during the call. Point number one, a lot of data is now accumulated in hydrochloroquine, and despite earlier positive results, comparative studies now look less promising. It appears that there is no clinical benefit versus standard care, and the FDA has recommended against using the drug outside of hospital settings. BMO's Farmer also believes it is time to move on from hydrochloroquine. Remdesivir, which is point number two from Gilead, is a direct antiviral drug which we think looks promising. Compassionate use-based testing showed encouraging results, and Gilead will release further tests and further results from a rigorous study in the next one to two days. Point number three from Mr. Farmer. About a dozen vaccines are being highlighted in different stages. The most high-profile one is from a company called Moderna, which is an RNA vaccine 
that encodes a key viral protein so the body can make its own protein to mount a protective response. If this moves forward, it will be a practical drug in the sense that it can be widely manufactured relatively easy. On behalf of BMO Financial Group and BMO Capital Markets, thank you so much for joining us. Be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.